0: Well, it's good to be here, and uh, my the passion of my heart is—it's uh, actually not movements or even church planting. Uh, it's that people would become followers of Jesus, and experience His grace, forgiveness, and uh, that disciple-making movements would multiply everywhere. And the fruit of the spread of the gospel and the making of disciples is the formation of new communities, whether we call them churches or acts can call them you know the believers or the disciples or the people of the way there's all sorts of names we can give to it but uh, um, that's why I'm here and for me I'm I'm actually going to give you the whole seminar now in 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 one image so you can leave in the next five minutes if you like because this is this is a this is everything for me and you have a look at that image. It's Caravaggio's uh, painting of uh, Paul's conversion and call on the Damascus Road. And um, the thing I love about it is that apart from Jesus, the greatest missionary, the, 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 the guy who launched the missionary movement into, uh, beyond Judaism into uh, the Gentile world and the reason we're here today, um, there he is getting his call and he's on his back in the dust. Doesn't know what his name is. He's blinded. His whole world has been unraveled by the risen Christ. And you look at that. Who is in charge? Who's calling the shots? You know, there's his sword lying useless. There's his massive steed there just about to tread on him and, and his friend holding the, the reins sort of wondering, what do I do now? Paul's going to be blind for the next three days. And then some. It, Jesus doesn't even send an apostle, just some believer called uh, Ananias to, to reassure him, uh, to uh, help him understand what God has done, to baptize him and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And none of this does Paul initiate or control? Now, what about if that's still true today? What about if Jesus rose from the dead and still leads the way? Pull down every book you've got on mission or missional evangelism or church planting and just ask yourself, is this what is at the heart of what I'm reading here? Because this is at the heart of what God is doing. It's actually not about us. It's not about us being smart enough, creative enough, whatever, it's not about this workshop. (laughs) So now you've got it, we can leave now and we'll get coffee or (laughs) we'll fill it out a little bit more. But the thing that strikes me here is that Jesus still leads the way. And if that's true, you know, that changes everything. Because we're going to step into what he is already doing. We are partners, Paul says, with God, co-workers with God. It's actually, we can resign today from our ministries. And Paul said, um, I'm preaching now, but Paul said, uh, you know, I'm not competent. We're not competent for any of this. We, we are broken earthen vessels, but God is competent. And that's, that's really at the heart of this whole movement dynamic. Um, It's not, you know, you're going to hear the five key characteristics of dynamic movements. It's taken me 20 years of wrestling with scripture, church history, business literature, sociology, what's happening in the world now, all of that sort of stuff. And you get these five keys. And you know what we do, especially us guys, if we're sort of reading all this stuff and coming to seminars, we think we've got five buttons to press and we can make it happen. We'll just align ourselves. And it doesn't work like that. It works like this. But we're going to look at those five keys simply because we need to understand when God shows up and does what He does, how do we participate and partner with that? How can we be faithful to what God is doing? So hopefully now you've got the whole picture. You're ready to resign from your ministry you're flat on your back. <laughs> some of us have been in that place and some of us will be. And it's awful and it's wonderful at the same time. Okay, so that's everything I'm going to say. Now let's fill it out a little bit. Uh, you've come. Some of you come, unless you're in the wrong thing, because you, you want to understand, well, what is this whole movement thing about? And it's hard. If you just boil the, the, the concept down, whether it's in... Um, Church history and the history of missions, or uh, whether it's in political, cultural, even fashion, okay? A movement is a group of people committed to a common cause. That's it, you've got it in a nutshell. So what are some of the movements that you can think of? Let's let's go outside uh, the church uh, or the Christian movement. In the last hundred years, what are some of the movements that have made history? Civil rights. Someone else. Nazi Germany. Nazi. Yeah, that. And that's a good point. That movements are not. They're neutral in the sense they are a dynamic, but they can they can be for evil. Um, Another one. (laughs) What was that? (laughs) 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 Your last church conflict. (laughs) Okay, we'll get you up and let's minister. Okay. People committed to a common cause. And here's the sort of flow that we see. And again, it's boiled down. Um, you can We'll fill it out a bit more in the book. And this is the last ad, I hope. We've got about 10 copies left. So see someone after if you want to get one. But um, the, first, um, the first thing is discontent. And, and some of us sort of said, Hey, man, I like that. <laughs> I can be disgruntled. Is God unhappy about the state of the world? Was Jesus agitated about things? Yeah. And whether it's losing weight (laughs) or getting fit or any field of life, change begins with, with a degree of agitation and discontent. And one of the things movement leaders do is they raise the levels of discontent. They sell the problem before they ever get to a solution. So one of your roles as a leader is you're going into meetings where you've been wrestling with the problem and you're about to sell a solution when you should be selling the problem. You should be raising the levels of tension about the gap between our reality and and what God wants to do. But you can camp there for a little while, okay, especially the guys. But if you stay there in discontent, you're going to end up cynical, a grumpy old man okay? So discontent unfreezes everybody. It's like something's wrong. Something's got to be different. It's a critique, okay? But if you camp in critique, it's a very safe place to be, you know, because it's about that problem out there. or And, you know, we can just get bucket loads of statistics about the church and decline and Gee, isn't the megachurch bad? And aren't those sort of emerging guys, what are they doing? You know, sitting around drinking coffee and stuff. Um, So you can critique, but every movement goes beyond critique uh, to a vision of a different world. Jesus had a positive kingdom agenda. He had a vision of a transformed world. And he fleshed that out in a local setting with the world in mind. So he's got his critique, and it's scary <laughs> when he really gets going, okay? You sort of want him for that elders' meeting that's giving you a hard time, that sort of thing. But most of what he da- did assumed the critique and then went straight into God's agenda in the world. Because when we camp in critique, We've just basically ruled God out of the equation. And again, you pull those books down off your shelves. Ask how many of them assume that God is at work in the world today? Because we can't stay in despair and critique if that's the case. But just like you camp in discontent, you end up a grumpy old man. You camp in vision (laughs) and you're living in a fantasy land. Because what point is a vision? What point is, you know, this is how it should be. It's sort of nicer than critique, but it gets a bit sickly sweet after a while. And so every movement goes from discontent into vision. You know, I have a dream. And then they move into action that embodies the dream. That points and may not even be. Martin Luther King did not have a detailed program and a strategic plan to roll out. But he had a critique, he had a vision, and people started taking action. It wasn't actually a program to systematically change the culture. For some of the guys, it's what is will will. We'll be on this bus where we're not supposed to be. Or we'll go in, we'll do a Bible study in this restaurant. We're not supposed to be here. And we'll get sometimes beat up. So they took action that fleshed out the vision. And a lot of the details have to flow out. And Jesus was like this. He didn't have a detailed program. There's no manual. We haven't found one yet. They might dig it up one day, you know. (laughs) There's no detailed manual. There is a critique. There is a vision, and then we see Jesus taking action and bringing others with him. So that's what movements do. We talked about what are some of the movements that have shaped our world in the last uh, century. And anyone know what this is, this movement? Woman suffrage. Woman suffrage. Suffragettes. The right of, and South Australia is the first uh, sort of Western democratic state to give women the, ro- the vote. Um, I think they might have been a colony at the time, I'm not sure, but anyway, we're taking credit for that. Um, okay, What's, what movement did this man represent? Often people say anti-slavery. His, per- his parents were former slaves. Anyone else? Any Pentecostals here? Raise your hands. <laughs> this is William Seymour uh, and uh, Azusa Street Revival now many outbreaks of Pentecostal revival around the same time different parts of the world but Azusa Street was the birth of Pentecostalism as a missionary movement so shame on you you don't know that a one-eyed black preacher literally he was blind in one eye and uh, he's a wonderful man I, I'm, anyway which movement is this? Communism, that's Lenin. The Bolsheviks, ah, this is an educated person. So you've, you've got the Bolsheviks, uh, anyway, there were Mensheviks, Bolsheviks, anarchists. So you have movements, overlapping movements. But the Bolsheviks won, and Lenin had a saying, on the first day of the revolution, the anarchists are heroes. On the second day, we should shoot them, and they did. What about this movement? Baywatch. <laughs> hey, they're, they're Aussie blokes, okay? That's, that's Bondi or Manly. What do you think it is? They're lifeguards, okay? So 1903, it's against the law to swim in public in daylight on an Australian beach. So William Gotcher comes along and, you know, one of the heroes of the Australian nation and he breaks the law. He's discontent, he has a vision, he takes action. Okay, what happens next? People start drowning. Because not only did he break the law, they got the law changed, people start drowning. So um, good swimmers, what they would do, they'd sort of gather together and, well, let's work out some strategies. How about we all link arms and we'll try and get out to the guy drowning? You know, imagine it's like, we just need three more people and he's going under and, and um, and then they had a, they had this sort of harness of leather and, and brass and stuff. We'll put that around you with a cable, and you'll swim out. Well, you know they're dragging that guy in and resuscitating him. <laughs> they had some good ideas uh, in, in in Australian surf lifesaving. They have these they are whaling boats, and they still use them sort of just to race. And that's sort of. I mean now they're on the jet skis, but but uh, and and that, they were effective. And life-saving in Australia, there's 70,000 volunteers that are part of that movement. And I say to my kids when they're growing up, every time we go to a beach, I say, now, in the last hundred years, how many people have died swimming between the flags, the the safety flags? And they'd say, none, Dad, you know. They've saved thousands of lives. It's a movement, okay? So they come in all shapes and sizes. Here we've got the Nasty Guys movement, the then the Nazis and the, and the, well, the fascists is the overall category. Nazism is a subset. You often get that with movements. So they can be an evil phenomena. Someone mentioned before the civil rights movement. How about this one? That's not John Lennon, I don't think. Yeah, it's a peace, anti-war, or whatever we want to call it. Uh, movement? No points for that, the women's movement. How about that? I told. I told Khomeini. So you could say, and he's a Shia Muslim, again, a subset within a wider faith, the Shia and Sunnis, they, they don't get on. Uh, he led the revolution in Iran, but he's also part of a larger group which are the, uh, the Islamists, yeah. And again, some of them, they fight each other, they regard each other as unbelievers. Uh, but they have shaped history in a profound way. Anyone remember this guy? Yeah. Lech Wałęsa, yeah. Solidarity. How- the Pope once said, uh, no, no, it wasn't the Pope, Stalin. They sort of said, oh, yeah, the Pope, this, that, and the other. And Stalin turned to the guy and said, well, how many divisions, how many soldiers and tanks does a Pope have? You know, it's like, why would, we, why would we worry about what the Pope thinks? Well, how many divisions? How, he had not, you know, he's an electrician. And if we have electricians in the room, I love you guys, okay? <laughs> but he, he, he doesn't have tanks behind him. The Russians could have nuked the whole of Poland if they wanted to. So you've got one dying and decaying movement and you've got solidarity with a lot of moral support from the Catholic Church. And, and the empire began to crumble because it lost its legitimacy. Okay, everybody's got dolphins on their shampoo now because of the green movement. The last one. It's a business. Anyone know what business this is? Apple. Apple. It's also a movement. We've got any Apple people here? Okay. We're all going to heaven, aren't we? We're in heaven. And if if you're a PC guy, you sort of, what is it with those Apple people, you know? And you can debate which is a better computer or not, but definitely Apple is a movement. It's not just a fad. Like, we are believers. Okay, so it can be, (laughs) movements sort of can put people off, by the way. What's the greatest movement of the last century? So by the end of the century, we've got a greater sort of geographic and population spread, and they're still standing and changing the world. What's the greatest movement of the last century? Facebook. it's a, I don't know if it's a movement in terms of it has a cause to change the world in an aggressive way. And I'm, I don't know, but we'll, let's leave that there, Facebook. Okay, what are the possibilities? Immigration. I don't know if that's a movement with a cause. That's a, a social trend. I'll give it to you. It's Christianity of the global south and it overlaps pretty much with pentecostalism charismatic evangelical and related movements not all of them will have the same tags we have in the west so we start with pretty close to zero and we're ending up with at least 500 million people within a century anybody want to say amen hallelujah praise god Christianity is still growing faster than Islam. Now, Islam's growing fast, but this is incredible. What do these guys have? What do these guys have? I mean, they took off when guys like us left. (laughs) Now, uh, Philip Jenkins says the missionaries planted the seed of the gospel, he's a historian. But then it became homegrown and it exploded. So they played an important and still do a key role this is amazing. So I say to people, don't worry about the decline of the church in the US or Europe or Australia, because your kids and grandchildren, they're gonna be evangelized by Nigerians, Brazilians, mainland Chinese, Koreans, you know. That's what God's going, and he's already, they're already making an impact on Europe. I w- now, this is hard to believe, but I, I think it's true. I was writing about this for my blog. There's a knock at the door. I go to the door. There's a gentleman and a lady from mainland China come to tell me about Jesus. So I said, sorry, I'm busy. I got to <laughs> We chatted for a while and I went back to work. Like, they didn't have great English. I don't, you know, but here they are knocking on my door. Isn't that wonderful? And this happens. The three of the four largest churches in London are international churches, mostly African, a lot of Nigerians. Nigerians, they're, they're, they're going to conquer the world. You ask the other Africans, watch out for those Nigerians. Um, okay, praise God. So, a movement is like. Movement, give me a phrase. Anybody got an image, not a descriptor, but a picture? What's a movement like? A virus. A wave. A virus. A wave. A wave. A wave. I haven't heard the wave thing before, but it's good. A wildfire. wildfire hit, yeah. It's like a, an avalanche. You know, there's. It's like a a mighty river that starts sort of all these little trickles in the mountains and the like. Somehow it comes together and the purpose of the river has one purpose, it's going to get to the ocean. And it's going to get to the ocean any way it can. Under rocks, around trees, down, you know, huge drops. That's what movements are like. So I, I like to ask not what did Jesus do? Because Jesus will take the smaller piece of cake, all right, or help your grandma with the shopping, or whatever. Now, he would do those things. But often we're projecting onto him just, he's nice sort of thing. What did Jesus do? You read the Gospels and Acts. I've been in them for a couple of years now. I can't get out of the Gospels and Acts. And I just keep asking, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? And he found it. A missionary movement. I mean, we know that he did, I mean, the the incarnation is an unrepeatable event. We might use that term, but only Jesus could do it. Because we're not God incarnate. He is. And we know the cross is his unique work. But what the legacy he left behind is a missionary movement. That is changing, has changed, and will change the world. That's what Jesus did. So right from the beginning, he grabs some guys and he says, come follow me and what am I going to do for you? Teach you to catch people, fish for men and women. That's, so as he calls people to be with him, he, tra- he takes responsibility to teach and train them to follow him in obedience and take the gospel to the ends of the world. That's what Jesus did. That's what incarnational ministry looks like. You know, um, oh, and this is what these guys, and this is Howard Marshall's translation. You know, we have that one version is they've turned the world upside down. Well, how Marshall reckons, I, I think this is a bit closer to it. They, you know, all around the world, these guys have caused trouble. And that's what movements do. That's, that's the legacy of Jesus' guy, And they weren't just guys because there were women disciples that traveled in, in the band with him at times and who also supported him. So what did Jesus do? You know, I've written a book. I love that upper stratosphere stuff, principles, strategy, all of that. And often that's we, a lot of, again, I'm giving that guys a hard time, but that's because they deserve it. Um, a lot. Of, we, we're preoccupied with models. That somehow if we get the model right, you know, used to be get the program right now we get the model right. Everything will happen. Well, let me give you Jesus' model. You wake up in a strange place, and you step outside the door, and you ask yourself, "Who has the Father prepared to meet for me to meet today?" That's his model of ministry, and he's got his disciples with him. He's trained. There's one hundred and seventy-five towns and villages just in Galilee. 200,000 people it's a fertile area can support a good-sized population. There's a million people in Palestine, Greeks, uh, Romans, Samaritans, uh, Jews, So there's a hundred thousand, on a good days a hundred thousand in Jerusalem if the pilgrims are in. And then there's Judea. Just in Galilee luke tells us jesus visited every town and village 175 of them if you go with eckhard (laughs) schnabel josephus says it was 200 but we we don't need to quibble on that so i'm thinking my next book should be jesus just left town if you want to be on his missional incarnational community you better be on your feet moving amongst people with a sense of urgency. And, and sure, he's doing the large group thing, but we also get insights into his encounters with individuals and he's looking for what he calls persons of peace or households of peace, doorways into communities, woman at the well, Matthew and his friends, um, uh, Zacchaeus and his family and community. And he's planting gospel seeds wherever he goes and he's moving, moving, moving amongst people. Thousands, I, 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 My guess is 200,000 people in Galilee, if he visited every town and village, every single one of them would have encountered Jesus directly or know someone who did. That's just Galilee. So, and the whole time he's doing this, looking for those persons of peace, uh, uh, allowing, Uh, the the gospel to spread not only into their lives, but like the woman at the well, she becomes the first missionary to her town. He stays there just two days and then he's got to move on. Eventually, his guys come back after Pentecost and help consolidate and extend the work. But um, that's, that's what he's doing. And the whole time he's training these folk and shaping them because they are going to be the nucleus for the new people of God. And they are going to be the church and a missionary movement all in one. So, you don't have to join a missionary movement. If you're following Jesus, you're in one. Now, we can say missional, missionary, apostolic, missions, whatever. It's all the same thing, okay? There's one word. It means to be sent with authority. And one side's Latin and the other side's Greek, all right? So, if you're all worried about being apostolic, because you don't want to write scripture, then you can be missional. And if you think that's too cool and urban, you can be a missionary movement. I just, I just sort of, anyway, that was a dig. Okay, what's the fruit of Jesus' ministry? By about AD 66, I reckon there was about 40,000 people. By 100 AD, there's about 320,000. These are estimates, but uh, they're pretty good estimates, a guy called Rodney Stark. By the way, everything I say is either going to be in the book or on the blog if you want to search sources and the like. By 300 AD, before Constantine has decided that it's a good idea for the church and the state to get together. Okay, So this is in the midst of continuing persecution, no outside support, no resources, we're looking at five to nine million people throughout the just the Roman Empire. And the gospels also pushing east. Uh, that's another story. One in ten people are following Jesus and suffering for it. This has never happened in history. I mean who is Jesus? He's a crucified criminal from this remote, sort of out of the way province, never before, I think never since has this happened. There's no, you know, there's no cultural supremacy, there's no economic power here, there's no military power, all of that is focused to stamp this movement out. When we want to go into a place, I mean we, we're the equivalent of the Romans, you know. We go in, we've got our resources and we should be doing all of that stuff to help people in need. But you flip it, imagine, imagine, if, if Jesus today was an African from an impoverished village. And okay, this is God's plan to win the world. I mean, who is going to follow some villager from Africa? Now, please forgive me, any Africans here, I'm just saying, that's not a good attitude, but that's what it's like. Okay, so here's the five characteristics. And I'm just gonna to treetop them, And you can follow up on the blog or in the book. First thing we see, whenever we see this movement dynamic taking off, whether it's Jesus ministry or uh, whether it's subsequent movements throughout church history, we see these things and I'll come back over them. We see white-hot faith. We see commitment to a cause. We see contagious relationships. We see rapid mobilization. And we see adaptive methods. They're the five keys. They're not the five buttons, by the way. This is just what happens when we partner with what God is already doing. Let's have a look at the first one, White Hot Faith. We've already talked about the incredible spread of Christianity of the global south. movements like uh, Pentecostalism or the African uh, indigenous churches or, you know, there's more believers now in, in mainland China than there are members of the Communist Party. There's about 70 million party members, and I've, I've met some of them, and most of them are doing it because it's good for your career, not because they're passionate about Karl Marx anymore. And there's somewhere between about 80 to 120 million believers throughout China. What did they have? You know, the gospel was planted. People, you know, Western and other nations, missionaries paid a price to do that. But it exploded when all the resources, all the outside training, all of the structures were stripped away. And it became a movement, a movement of movements. So what they had is a white hot faith. Now, I'm glad we're being recorded today. I'm glad we're in a great facility, okay? But that's not going to get us there. It never has, it never will. So, here's the face of global Christianity. She's African or Brazilian, she's poor, she lives in a village, and she's young. Anyone got to praise God? <laughs> God goes where He's wanted, you know. That's the face, Philip Jenkins says, in Next Christendom of world Christianity. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Let's have a look at Africa. And these figures are in the book on the block. So how many believers have we got in Africa in 1900? We've got about 9 million. How many have we got 100 years later? 360 million. And that's after 40 or 50 years of turmoil. First, they sort of let's push the colonial powers out and then let's implode for a while. And there's still some terrible stuff happening in, in Africa. And yet the gospel's advancing. The projections are 644 million believers by 2025. What did they have? So worldwide, here's Christianity in 1900. Those white dots represent folk like me and some of you. The orange dots represent folk from Africa, Asia, Latin America, those sorts of parts of the world. So it's a ratio of four to one. It's, our faith is a European religion. By European, I include you know North America and Australia and maybe even New Zealand in that. By 2050, it's switched. This is wonderful. This is, you know, it's not on our radar either. And I mean, I tell people this and they say, well, you know, the church in Africa, it's a mile wide and half an inch deep. And I said, just just clarify for me, were you talking about the church in Africa or the church in Australia or America or Europe? Because they've got their problems and so do we. There's always gonna be mess. But we still ought to step back and say, this is wondrous. This was not our plan. This was not in our strategic plan as we looked at the demographics. This is a work of God. Okay, oh gee, that's only my first point. Oh well, we'll just skip the main session. Commitment to a cause. It's fine to be passionate, you actually gotta do something. And movements have high levels of commitment. You know, not just imposed on people, but it's like being in a great sporting team. You're just, you're there because you live the goal that you're working towards. You're passionate about it. You work it out in your behavior. So here's Jesus, right? I love this image. It's on the, on the blog. And he's, he's come to talk to Zebedee here about his sons, James and John. And you look how they intently are looking into the eyes of Jesus. Jesus is intently looking into Zebedee's eyes. He's got his hands on his arm reassuring him. And what's Zebedee's eyes doing? Is he a happy man? He's not angry, he's devastated. Because Jesus has come for his sons. One of them's going to die a violent death and the other one's going to spend a lot of time in prison. And he's got to go home and tell Mrs. Zebedee. What gives Jesus the right to take away his sons? It's a wonderful kingdom cause. And for all eternity, they will rejoice that they made that decision. Zebedee and Mrs. Zebedee will rejoice. But it costs them something. Because they saw in Jesus the presence of God's kingdom. And he made high demands on his followers. What we suffer from today, says G.K. Chesterton. He's sort of the Catholic C.S. Lewis. He wrote this a hundred years ago, but we're still suffering. We have humility in the wrong place. We're meant to doubt ourselves and believe the gospel. Instead, we question the gospel and we believe in ourselves. This is true of Western Christianity, by the way, overwhelmingly. We've got to be committed to core things, the truth of the gospel, the sort of um, way of life that the scriptures teach, so movements come up against society at times. And they can be a little bit caustic at times. And so you see in Acts, you know, it's like people are amazed by these guys and they're also fearful to join them at the same time. Because there's a sense of commitment to a common cause in Christ. There's an atmosphere of, sure, you, we, we've come from broken backgrounds. But we're not going to stay there if we're part of the body of Christ. Okay. Here's my mate Dave. He's uh, on the executive team of a church of three, 4,000, except he doesn't turn up anymore. He and his wife started prayer walking in one of the toughest parts of town on their day off because they didn't have time to do it any other time. God started leading them to people. So- pretty soon Dave's got... Uh, in, in a household of Sikhs from India there's about 12 or 14 of them in two bedroom household they're throwing newspaper down on the floor and wonderful food on top and they're sitting around and eating on the floor and Dave's opening up the gospels and telling them about Jesus so he, he's going back to his church saying guys I, I don't know if I can sort of turn up anymore and they, they say that's okay Dave we'll still pay you off you go you know they have a kingdom vision there's 50 or 60 people from around my city and now in other parts of Australia that are doing what Dave does. They they're connect, no one's getting paid. Oh, Dave's getting paid, but I keep telling you, you've got to be on missionary support. None of this staff stuff, if you're a missionary now. And you, anyway, because we're sort of wondering, you know, why don't we have enough Sunday school teachers or parking attendants or whatever? What the problem is, why don't we have a cause that's worth living and dying for. So Dave is a people magnet now, the right sort of people. And they're just doing what he does. He doesn't know what he's doing, but he's having a go and God's showing up. People are coming to faith from all sorts of uh, broken and difficult backgrounds. Okay, that's commitment to a cause. We're going to move a bit faster. Contagious relationships. Here's uh, my dad's, cousin, Jim Spence, he and his mates are going off to enlist uh, in the army to fight in World War One. Two, two, sorry Jim. Um, they're 17, so they're gonna lie about their age and off they go, six of them left. Jim returned home as a hero. They fought in the Middle East and then they fought in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, above Australia. But he returned alone. Five of his friends didn't make it back. And he, he lived in the same house as my dad. They were like He's like his older brother, his hero. But inside, Jim is a broken man because of the experiences he's had. And one day he decides, I'm going to take my life. So down to Sydney Harbour, this is Drew. <laughs> I'm going to jump off the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I'm sure all the fences are there now. You can't do it, but you could in those days. And he encounters... A bunch of people who are preaching the gospel in the open air and gives his life to jesus my father's horrified that his hero older brother figure is now what they used to call in australian culture a wowser now i don't have to define it you know what it means he's a wowser three months later my dad has given his life to christ The people who are most likely to come to know Christ are people who've seen a life change recently. They're not not your neighbours if you've been a believer for years, but you should still share Jesus with them. It's new believers sharing with their oikos, their household, their relational networks. That's how movements spread, whether they're Black Panthers or Pentecostals or we all ought to wear this colour this year. And it's certainly how Christianity spreads dramatically. It's a long story, but there's my dad and my mum, And I like to say my little brother, but he's not that good looking. And I tell him all over the world, people think you look like that. So they've gone to Papua New Guinea. They've, not only did dad come to faith, but when Jim returned to Papua New Guinea as a missionary, dad followed a number of years later. Okay, contagious relationships. This is the world. You know, we're all, people said six degrees of separation, six handshakes away from everyone on the planet. It's not true. It's (coughs) 5.5. And that's why Christianity was spread. This is a a philosopher critiquing and arguing against Christianity because it's spread by wool workers, by cobblers, laundry workers, illiterate and bucolic yokels. I've got a feeling they live in Arkansas. I don't know. <laughs> Anyone? I'm, that's where I'm headed next, so please, cut the tape. Okay. So, woman at the well, Jesus' first missionary into that Samaritan village. Here's my wife, Michelle. Everyone goes, wow. <laughs> and here's Jenny, person of peace that Michelle led to the Lord. And then Jenny's on Skype. She lived, she's Chinese from the mainland, but she's lived in Japan for a while. She's sharing the gospel through Skype. She's on Skype to her mom back in China sharing the gospel. She's, we, Michelle and I are in disagreement yet. I think she's led her husband to the Lord, but he's certainly close. <laughs> and her sister-in-law to the Lord, she keeps bringing people to our little English conversation class. She's a people magnet. They're out there. We don't have time, but if we did have time, where's Jeff Sundle, is he gone? No, he's down the back. That's, that's his one little aspect of his missionary mission field. interconnecting relationships. relationship, these are new believers, households where the gospel has spread contagiously throughout networks of relationships. See Jeff later if you'd like to learn more. Okay, the fourth characteristic that we see. So my mate, Des, it's rapid mobilization, Des is a builder, and uh, I caught up with Des once, he supports our ministry and um, said, I-, I heard Des you've got out of all the domestic stuff and you're going more sort of small industrial hospitals, that sort of, thing. I'm just making conversation. So, so what are you building these days, Des? He says, Steve, I, I don't build buildings. Now, it's an unusual thing for a builder to say. So I asked the question, what do you build, Des? You, You could have knocked me over with a house brick. This is what he said. I build builders. That's his mission. So he disciples young men. He disciples young men. He wants to input into their life. And he realized, you know, I'm happy to be a single builder. You know, just work for myself but I want to give some of these guys a chance in life because some of them had tough backgrounds. I, I'm going to start taking on apprentices. And I'm going to, those apprentices are going to grow into carpenters. And, and my plan is maybe a quarter of them will end up master builders like he is, which means they can go out in competition against him. They, they don't. And his whole business, he's not building buildings. He's building builders and he's building young men. And not all of them know Jesus yet, but they've been in our home, okay? They're, they're, they're great guys. And uh, because theirs is invested in them. Not just how do you be a good builder, how do you be an honest one, how do you have integrity, how you generous?